The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Suffering, hardship, affliction, distress, pain, whatever word best fits, trouble in life is common in life. To have troubled lives is life for everybody, Christians included, Christians especially, us. This difficult reality is what we looked at last week in the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And as we did, what we saw kind of rising out of the text there was this, this pairing, this maybe unexpected, purposeful pairing of, of suffering, affliction, and comfort. It's woven all together all throughout that passage. Some 17 times those words appear in verses 3 to 7. As Paul lays out there, normal and purposeful suffering in the Christian's life, especially in the life of the Christian who's going to follow Jesus into the path of ministry mission. Jesus, the suffering servant. Jesus, the one who was crucified to save us. He calls us to follow him knowing that as we do, as we we follow him along that path, we will find suffering also. And he also knows that along that path we will find our Father showering us with comfort. That's where the Father and that's where the Father's comfort is found, as well as that's where the suffering is found. Comfort and suffering together. Comfort that we need, comfort that others need through us. That was all last week, verses 3 to 7, as we saw Paul taking the usual beginning of a letter and kind of turning it. Letters often began back then with some section of blessing, but instead of blessing the recipients, he's blessing God for how God works comfort in affliction in the lives of his people. That was last week, and now this week as we come to verses 8 to 11, Paul gets more specific. He gives us an example of the affliction he faced and indirectly shows us also the comfort that he found. This is a, this is a passage that is, is good, it's specific, it's an example, and it's also perhaps pretty challenging because what we're going to find here is a pretty challenging direct statement about God's purpose in suffering, how he uses it to grow us as we suffer and uses it to grow the church around the suffering one as we join together with them to help. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And as we do that, I I recognize something that is potentially hard here. I'm talking to a large group from a passage in a book, and that is of necessity somewhat theoretical but your life might be anything but theoretical. It might be very real and very raw right now. And I just want to say, if if that is, I I understand that, and I'd be more than happy, eager, in fact, to talk. To talk about what may seem kind of cold, distant, almost analytical, and very disconnected from what's hurting you. So if you need to talk, I would love to. We're going to look here at a passage, and what what Paul does here in this passage is he tries to 
in the Spirit of God does give us something that's meant to be kind of a foundation so that we, when we face the real and the raw, we've got something to stand on, something to kind of settle ourselves on. Something real about God and real about God's purposes in what we're facing and, and, and in upheaval over. So, that's some of what we're going to look at this morning. Let me read verses 8 to 11 and then I'll draw out uh, two observations from these verses. In, in a way, this is kind of like part two from last week because we're still talking about suffering. So a lot of what I said then needs to kind of color what we hear now. Here's the beginning of verse 8. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Verses 8 to 11. Two observations. Here's the first. God purposes in our affliction to make us dependent on him. God purposes in our affliction to make us dependent on him. He plans, he's got a purpose, he intends. That is to make us dependent. In verse eight, Paul begins by describing some of his affliction. Something happened to Paul, he says, in the province of Asia, which is essentially like modern day Turkey. He was there and something happened. He leaves out the details so we can't really be sure, but the best guess is that he's referring to the riot that we read about in Acts 19, the riot that happened in Ephesus that finished off his three-year ministry there, drove him out of the province, and never went back. Probably he's talking about that, but he doesn't give us a lot of details so we can't really be sure because what he emphasizes in verse 8 is not exactly what happened, but how bad it was when it happened. We, and again, that's Paul really talking about himself, I, I was, we were, so utterly burdened beyond our strength, he says. Picture a a boat that is loaded and sinking under the weight, going down, swamped, or Picture a beast of burden with a a mound of packages on its back as it's just crushed, its legs give way, and it sinks to the ground because it can no longer stand up under all the weight. It's, It's overloaded. That's what he's saying. We were so overwhelmed, so burdened, I couldn't bear up. I was hopelessly overwhelmed, and I despaired of life itself. Indeed, I felt... I'd received the sentence of death. So he doesn't mean there was actually a court and a literal death sentence. He's talking about inside, literally it's we within ourselves. I felt a death sentence. 
He'd stopped hoping in somehow extending this life and realized it's over. He's the man tied up with ropes, picture it, thrown into the ocean and sinking. First, you start just thrashing about desperately, trying to loosen the ropes, trying, trying to get a hand loose, trying to get an elbow, trying to get an angle, trying to, struggling, hoping, wrestling, wriggling, but the ropes won't move, and the light on the surface begins to fade away as you go down and down and down. Your lungs are burning and flaming, and there's just no progress, and you begin to kind of lose consciousness, and as you fade away, you realize this is it. I'm going to die. Into your hands I commit my spirit, Lord. That moment, that's where he was. After the struggle is over, and there's no more trying, there's no more hoping, you just surrender because you realize it's over and I lost and I'm dead. I'm not getting out of this. That's what he's talking about. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. That's how bad it was in Asia. I want you to be real clear. That's where I was. He's been opposed, yelled at, stoned. I want you to be real clear. I was dead. And I knew it. Maybe you've been afflicted like that, but you've never been afflicted more than that. Never had to suffer beyond where Paul was there, which is helpful. Because it means that whatever then Paul found, whatever God then gave to Paul, however the Father fathered Paul into comfort right there in that spot of affliction, that'll work for you too because you've never been beyond there. Whatever kind of affliction fits your life or will one day fit your life, Paul can say, I've been there and let me tell you something, I found something, God met me, which should make us kind of like pay attention and say, well, well what did God do? What did, what did God work into your life? I'm, I'm listening, show me. It should draw us near to make us pay attention and when we do, what we, what we hear first, that might be hard to hear at first. Because here it is. Paul says, God did this to me on purpose. What? Our Father brought that affliction to me on purpose, with intention. Intentionally, he did this. Middle verse 9, look at the sentence. He says, but that was to make us, not just, this affliction resulted in, that was to make us. That's the language of intention, of purpose. If I say, it rained, and I got wet, that's just something happened and there was a result. But if I say it rained so that I would get wet, that alerts you, oh, he's talking about somebody behind the rain who had a purpose. 
of getting me wet and caused it to rain. That's the language of the passage. This was to make us. There's a plan. God had a goal that he was out to reach. He has a goal for his child, he has, for all of his children, but here we're seeing it in Paul's life in particular. In order to get that goal, he brought this affliction. For sure, thousands of people in Ephesus, who knows who and in what ways, thousands of people in Ephesus, have all kinds of sin involved in this for which they are accountable, they are responsible. For sure. They did things, they said things, they acted in ways, they bear responsibility for their sin. But let, let's be clear about this, they were not sinning as if they are some sort of omnipotent beings somehow outside of the control of God, and they just do whatever they will, and then God works with what they give him. That's not true. The Lord is God. He is sovereign over all things. The Bible is extremely clear about this. Think of Ephesians 1.11. He works all things according to his own counsel, according to his own purposes. So God advises himself what he wants done and then gets it done. Working through for sure, it's the doctrine of providence, working through for sure all kinds of secondary causes and events and people and choices. But he's sovereign. It's a purpose and a plan which he then accomplishes. And what's the purpose then? Verse 9. So that we would come to rely not on ourselves, but on God, it says. On God who raises the dead. God's goal is to break self-reliance and in its place to build God dependence. To make us rely not on ourselves but on God, the God who raises the dead. To cause us to rely on him and to stop relying on ourselves to restore us to the proper image of God. This is what true humanity is. This is our rightful place beneath the sovereign creator who is good. When a person is truly and fully and properly human when one is beneath the sovereign maker, creator, sustainer, ruler, and lover of the universe. And God's at work then to restore us to properly, not to subject us and deprive us of our humanity, but to give it back to us and make us dependent. That's the goal, to make us like Christ, in other words. And to get there, he brought Paul to the point of utter hopelessness, helplessness, surrendered in his affliction to bring him to the end of life so as to change him. There's an interesting grammar point here. So not only does Paul feel like the death sentence has been passed, settled, I'm a dead man, but grammatically he also says, and this relying, that also is a subtle thing. Like, like something changed in Paul here. He was different after this. He was changed to rely not on himself but on God. In a deep and abiding way, he was made different. 
making him one who depends on God differently than before. And notice carefully, not just depending on God to get me out of this predicament. Check this. Sometimes I'm talking like this and, and somebody's tracking, but you're thinking something. I want to like line this up here. Paul's dependence ultimately is not I switched over to, I was trying to get myself out of this predicament and I switched over my dependence to God to get me out of this predicament. No, it's I'm under a settled death sentence and I'm trusting in God who raises the dead. I've switched over not just to trust myself to get me out of this predicament, but to trust God to carry me through the predicament to the other side of it. God who raises the dead, not who keeps me from dying. This life is over. And I was sweetly, wonderfully moved, changed to trust the God of the next life. Which, of course, then means that he's the God of this life, too. And he will deliver me. He, he, he did deliver Paul, and he delivered Paul countless times. And he's going to deliver me again in the future. He says that in the passage. But Paul knows now, in a, in a deep and abiding and a real way, that my life, I'm, I'm, Paul knows, Paul's headed to the axe, and he knows that. This all ends with Paul dead. And Paul, something happened in him here where he said, and sweetly being carried up to that point and feeling like I'd already passed over it, being released. I came to trust the God who raises the dead and to live for the next life and the God who gives it. In other words, settled on the fact that this life is fleeting and the life to come is what matters and convinced that God gives that to me and I can trust him. I can trust him fully. My hope is in him, which is what he says in verse 10, right? Again, with this grammatic sense of settled and, and confirmed, my hope is in him. I felt the death sentence settled on me and that changed me to become one who now depends on God, who hopes in God to raise me from the dead. And I really believe that now. Says the Apostle Paul in the middle of his second missionary journey. which might make you pause and think, uh, did you not already believe that? You're the Apostle Paul. You've got 1.5 missionary journeys already behind you. Didn't you already believe that God raises the dead, that this life is passing away, that the next life is the one to be lived for, that God certainly delivers us to it, and that therefore then God can be trusted with everything. Didn't you already believe that, Paul? And he says, yeah, I did, but not like I needed to, just like you. You already believe that, but not like you need to. Deeper, fuller, stronger dependence on God. Paul needed that. We need that.
And the good God, your Father, will be at work to make this grow in you, this crucial component of Christ-likeness. Can, can you step off the side for a second and say, I'm talking about a crucial component of Christ-likeness. I'm talking about being dependent on God, properly humanly beneath Him, and seeing that He is the one who we can be who can trust, who we can trust with this life and the next, and who ultimately is carrying us home. All of that, it, it can be very theological, it can be very theoretical, but can you step away from the side and say for a second, would that not also be tremendously comforting? And that's the flow of this, of this chapter, of, of these two paragraphs. That would be tremendously comforting because it would put you in a spot of being able to say, so here's life open-handed, come what may, I'm okay. This is comfort. The Father working in your life to, to put you in the spot of saying, what I most have eyes for and most have a heart for is the life that is to come, and I am certain now in a more deeply resolved way than I ever have been, I see it that God takes me there. He raises the dead. Whew. So I'm at rest here, come with me. Yeah, he's going to deliver me here now in some ways. He's going to grow me here now in some ways. But ultimately, this ends with the grave, comma, and the life after that. That's comfort. That's peace amidst affliction. Paul needed that, and you need that. And so God, in love, is going to work that into you. Maybe not with such a dramatic, utterly overwhelming thing like he did for Paul. And maybe not in such a decisive, like, switch-flipped way like he did for Paul. But Christian, this is what he is up to in your life. Using all the things that stress and stretch and burden and disappoint you and that may overwhelm you, he brings that stuff to you on purpose. to make you rely not on yourself any longer, but on him. And you need to be aware of this. You need to know this. It's good that Paul passes on knowledge about this and passes on this comfort to us because there's always going to be something kind of whispering in your ear here when you face the affliction that's going to say, this is actually curse. This is actually punishment. This is actually anger from God against me. Because you're going you're gonna to see, you're going to know the ways that you rely on yourself. And it's true, we do, we do rely on ourselves too much. We are, we are fallen people. We sin. Yep, for sure. That's true. But here's the truth, Christian. All that has been laid on the one who never trusted himself, who never tried to live independently, perfectly fully as the right and proper human depended on his father always and yet still heard the verdict of death passed over him. Jesus. The verdict of death was passed on him for you. 
And all through that, he trusted perfectly, obediently, independently on the one who raises the dead for you. And he was raised back up to newness of life from the dead for you so that then you could know this, that, that, that this is true for you, that never, not one bit, not at all, does God bring affliction into your life in anger and hatred in wrath and punishment to get you for what you've done wrong. Never, not ever, not once, not at all, does God bring affliction, suffering, hardship, trial into your life because he forgot you and he overlooked you and it slipped up and you, you're out of his mind or he doesn't care about you. No. You can know for you that God indeed does on purpose through the workings of other people for which they're responsible, but God does indeed purpose to bring into my life hardship for the doing of good to you. Period. And maybe in that Actually, there's something to say to the person who isn't a Christian who's kind of hearing this too. It's a human thing. We get to the end of our ropes. We find ourselves, no matter who you are, no matter where you live or when, we human beings find ourselves overwhelmed and burdened and afflicted and suffering. It is part of life in this life. And maybe God is talking to you in that. Because the fact of the matter is that we are really bad gods. We are weak, small. We do crazy, silly, foolish stuff. And we are not good. And so what we, when we try to be gods and when we trust in ourselves to make life right, we constantly mess it up. And we make some things that are good and then we mess those things up and we make other things that are just straight up terrible. We are, we are bad gods. And maybe what God is saying to you is I have an alternative. Trusting in yourself does not work, but trusting in me, depending on me, brings you to life. I make no promise that you will get the kind of life that you want, but I will make you a promise that you will get a good life if you trust me. If you come to me in Christ, I'll give you the life that is right, and I'll give you life after this forever. Trust Christ. That's the offer that God makes to the person. Maybe you're at the end of your rope from trusting in yourself. He's calling you. There's deliverance found in me in Christ, says the Lord. Christian, this, this is who you are. And God is purposing in all your trouble to break you sweetly. To break you sweetly. So as to build you. To make you depend on the dependable one and find in him deliverance. Maybe not to the kind of life you were hoping to have or to the kind of of life or circumstance that you're really struggling to, you can't say, I'm going to stop trusting myself to make this work and I'm going to trust you to make it work like this. That's, that's actually not trusting him. 
I turn from myself and I open-handed put it in front of you and say, here, make from it what you will. I trust you. It is helpful to realize that the joy that God wants to set before you is not something here in this earth, but ultimately it is Him communed with forever. Starting now, but communed with forever in the life that is to come. It is helpful to realize that and helpful to see that that's, if I back up and look at all the afflictions and troubles that I'm facing, in them all, that's what God's doing, bringing me to this spot for my joy, for my comfort, for my good. So pause there. What's troubling you? What are you afflicted by? It, it might be something great and large and really raw, but it might be something smaller. Now, what is it? Give some thought to that and, and look at it. I don't know who said this, but the unexamined life is not worth living. There's a lot of truth in that. I'm not talking about navel-gazing. I'm, I'm talking about stopping and thinking about your life. What's going on? I, I feel it. I, I feel the heat. I feel the pressure. I feel the trial. But to stop and look at that and say, what's going on in that? So what, what is it for you? Where do you find yourself struggling? Where do you find yourself trying to make it work? It might be that right there, what you, what you found there is that's the piece of self-reliance, that's the piece of self-hope, self-dependence, self-process, self-goals that I need to hold up open-handed in front of him and say, here, I surrender this to you. I, I think probably, I'm, a, I'm just touch one example here, you're going to have to plug in whatever it is for you into this spot, but probably if you're a parent, at some point or another, the state of your kids becomes one of those things. And it's tricky because in some way they are your responsibility. They've been, they've been delivered into your lap and you've got to somehow guide them. So it's very easy to, to kind of close up your hand around them when their health is threatened or when, when you see choices that they're making and, and the direction, the path they're walking is threatening to close up tight is very challenging. I, I'm not saying you stop parenting by no means. I'm not saying that you stop engaging, that you stop thinking, but I'm saying that perhaps for many parents, that's a, that's a biggie here. Maybe that is something that God would use in some sort of a uniquely challenging, uniquely overwhelming, akin to Paul's special affliction. Here. When you put it there, what do you find of him? He's your only hope. And he is the sure and certain hope. 
He will not always save you from suffering, but he will save you through it, and he will save you to life, and he will raise you up in the end into that in which you truly hope for. So who do you have to fear? What can man do to you? See the comfort in that. That's who he is. When I put it there in front of him, that's what he does. So what do I have to fear? If God would so grow you in this, anxiety would be a foreign concept. Worry would be out the window. And rest and comfort would characterize you. That would be a good work, a good gift from God. And that's what he purposes to do in our affliction. That's the first point. Now, maybe a little shorter, the second. Looking primarily at verse 11. Prayer for suffering Christians brings great blessing to the entire church. So pray. Prayer for suffering Christians brings great blessing to the entire church, so pray. Verse 11, Paul turns his focus, and he is now addressing the church, and he says, you also must help us by prayer. Now, depending on which English version you'll read, you're reading, you'll, you'll notice that each English version kind of does something a little different here to try to make some English sentences out of what is a long thought from Paul in verses 10 and 11. So everybody's got to break it up somewhere or another to make something readable. My version breaks, makes a new sentence in verse 11. Others go other places. But the, the point to understand is that the, the thoughts in verse 10 about God delivering are connected to the statement in verse 11 about the church body praying. So like the NAS version puts it, God will deliver, it's verse 10, comma, you also joining in helping us through your prayer. They're, they're connected like that. God will deliver, comma, you also helping. He's trying to make a point about the importance of the church family at prayer for those who are afflicted. When we consider the, the sufferings and we see the afflictions of those that are around us, those who are our brothers and sisters with us, we shouldn't just sit back and watch. We shouldn't just think, well, God's got it and then do nothing. We're, we're supposed to to realize I've got a part to play in this, I'm supposed to help. And not just help by sending money or help by providing a meal or by sending a delegation to give some sort of tangible physical assistance. Not that those are bad things, and, and we've talked about this before back in Timothy where there was a man named Onesephorus who went and did those very things for Paul when he was in prison. And there in that context, Paul uses it as a model and says, this is good and right. Be like this. So it's good and right. Yeah, be like that. It's just not what this is about. Something else is emphasized here. We must help by prayer. By praying for us, for the afflicted one. Why emphasize that in particular? Here. 
because of what prayer is at its heart. When we pray, when, when we really pray, what we're doing is we are relying on God to intervene and to do things that we are acknowledging, we are aware of, I can't make happen. I cannot accomplish. I can't do. I'm powerless. Lord, help. So here's the church, united, praying, seeing some beloved one afflicted in some way or suffering. And when we come together, and we all, as one, in a small group or in a large group, we lift up our unified voice to God, beseeching him on behalf of this one, acknowledging we have no power, but Lord, you do. We are people beneath you, looking to you, saying, here, all of us together unified, God sees that, is very pleased, answered, and as it says, grants blessings. That really, truly, you got to check yourself here, really, truly wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. That's why he says to pray. Ask, seek, knock, and you will receive, meaning that if you don't, you won't. Things actually happen differently if we pray or don't. Blessings are granted through the prayers of many. To this afflicted one or these afflicted ones, we ask God who raises the dead, Lord, intervene. And in some way he will. He's not beholden to us. He'll intervene how he will, but he will. So we must pray if we hope to see God intervene and grant blessings to his hurting people. So pray. But in fact, if you notice closely, that's not actually the main point of verse 11. The church helping the afflicted by means of prayer it's there, we should be praying, but just like up in verse 9, there's actually a purpose statement there in the verse. It's not, so that blessings may be granted. You must help by prayer so that many will give thanks. Look, that's what it says. So that many will give thanks for the blessings that are granted. The intended result is many giving thanks. Getting the church to that spot of the church body as a whole giving thanks to God, that's the goal. And, and that, in fact, actually happens naturally when we see some great need met, right? That's, that's what rises out of us, especially when it's some deep need, some some compelling need that we are very vulnerable in and can't meet. When that happens, thank you kind of rises out of us automatically. That's what God's looking for in us. Why is that? It would seem maybe more logical that what God wants, here's the afflicted one, and what God wants is us to pray so that he can help the afflicted one. But this is about God wants us to pray so that he'll help the prayers. Why? Well, when you're praying along the lines of the thought here in these two paragraphs, when you're praying for someone, some, some beloved friend, brother, sister, 
And you see then, I, I feel your need. I feel the vulnerability and the powerlessness. And so dependent, I, we together, we, we lift up our voice to God, and then we see God in some way intervene. You ever been there? Ever seen that happen? What happens in you in that moment? Where, where are you in heart in that moment? The prayer. Something like this is where you are in that moment, I think. You are a mix of heartbroken, desperate, prayerful, hopeful, and beside yourself delighted. A mix of that. And they all feed each other. You wouldn't be beside yourself delighted if you weren't also hopeless and desperate. But if you remain hopeless and desperate then, and God never answered, then there would be no delight. They're, they're all kind of woven together and in some, some moment right there where you are is Godward in gaze, face lifted upward, hope fixed on God, not on ourselves, and then thankful as God shows you something of himself, something of his powerful personal care and love for this person who is one of you just like you. And as God shows you his powerful personal attention to and care for and his, his ear turned towards your prayer, thankfulness is actually drawing you, binding you to God and giving you actually, in a way, the same sort of comfort that the afflicted person just had. You partake in their comfort. The answer isn't for you, but it sort of is. Because you did the best you could to draw up next to that person. And thankfulness also feels like God's there and God's for us and God can do anything and God cares and God loves us. What, what I'm trying to get at there is that I think part of the reason why he says you also must help us, like you've got a part you have to play in this too, is that sometimes, if I'm Paul, I'm going to go through some affliction that's God's work in my life, and God also has a purpose for that affliction in your life. And how you join in this is you pray and you see the answer. And then your heart is turned Godward in thanksgiving too. And at other times, the shoe will be on the other foot. You'll be afflicted. And I'll pray for you. And how I'll enjoy that and join into that is, is I'll, I'll pray and then I'll be delighted as I see God intervene in your life. And both of those situations, that's the life of the church. Sometimes you're afflicted and I'm praying. Sometimes I'm afflicted and you're praying. And together, both of us, from the affliction and the praying, are being drawn to God, seeing him as the God who raises the dead, who is our hope, and who delivers. Together. We join in and are both grown in dependence. That's what prayer is about.
dependence. That's what he's after in his people. Not just the answer to prayer, but the effect of prayer answered. A Godward heart that's dependent and rejoicing in him, thankful. So what I think this means for a church like ours is, for any church, is that we, we don't have any, any control over the type of affliction that God brings our way. That, that's just going to happen. But we do have some control over, are we going to pray with one another in those afflictions or not? And I would hope that we would say, yeah, of course. And not just for you to be helped, but for my joy as the prayer also. So something like this is what I would suggest. And this, this in some way tracks. If you were in the, in the women's book study this summer, you probably heard some things like this. It was talking about, the book study was talking about people in the church side by side with one another growing in, growing in godliness. And one aspect of that is to be close enough to people to know them and to know where they are and what hurts and what afflicts to ask, understand, listen, and then to pray. To not think first, well, here's what I'd do. Let me tell you how to, how to cope with that. I've got the expertise you need. And not just to say, I'm sorry. That must be hard. But more than that, to say, let's ask our Father who is the only one who can deliver. I don't know what he'll do. He, he may answer this. In, there may be some specific request. I need some health in my child. There, maybe he'll answer that. But what I think he's going to more likely do is work first in us to change us and grow us. He may give health to the child. Maybe he won't. I don't know. Let's pray and put it all in front of him like this. Get close enough to people to know them and to care. Ask and listen and then pray with them persistently, following up. How did it go? How goes it with your soul? This can happen in large group settings. It can. I think it's probably less likely because not everybody wants to share all the details of how they're actually doing in a large group. It might be better to think like a discipleship group size or a a people, a three people, four people size group where you can actually say, this is where I really am and what I really need. Let's pray. Close, listening, praying. And what will happen from that is that God will answer and grow in us a conviction, a deepening conviction that he holds our lives that he's trustworthy, that he's good, and that what comes at the end of all this is certain life with him when he raises the dead. This is our need. This is God's purpose in affliction, to grow in us dependence for our comfort and for his honor. Let me pray.
Lord, I don't know exactly what each person here is facing right now, but you do. I don't know what we will face tomorrow or next week, but you do. What I want to ask you to do, Lord, is will you draw near to your people and deepen in us conviction? Maybe amidst the affliction now or maybe right before, deepen in us conviction that you are trustworthy. That you are capable and that it is good and right and wise and safe to give our lives to you. And will you fix in us, in a deeper way, a, a desire for more than just this life, but a desire for the next one and that certainty that you'll take us there. Lord, I'm asking you, would you help your people? Would you father us? Would you shape us and mature us and grow us up? Would you help if in some ways you would want to deepen some, some small group or maybe even some large group patterns of prayer in our church, Lord, please do that. Please bring conviction to us in, in, in large numbers or in small. It would, would bring some growth in that area in our church. It would be a blessing to us. We're yours. Whatever we are and whatever we will be is in your hands. and You build it belong to you. So thank you for being trustworthy and for being good. Thank you for Christ who makes all of this possible and gives us an assurance that we stand in your favor, smiled upon. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.